Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Not to beat people up to say, we want to show you your sin, you evildoers. But to say, if there's distance, it's good to say so. So you can recognize an invitation to come back. That's the heart of this series. To return to God is not so much about casting blame and shame. It's about hearing an invitation uh, to come back into the heart of God. This last weekend, uh, Leslie and I drove over to Minneapolis with a, uh, a bunch of people from Damascus Road. And our purpose for the weekend was to hear, to hear some of the things that we think God maybe have planned for Damascus Road to dream dreams and to like to wonder and to start to plan and to think and dream about where we're going as a church. I love the time. So Leslie and I drove over with Justin. Justin's co-pastor. Uh, you've seen him here a number of times. He spends most of his time at West. Um, he's a younger dude, so like he's 28. So we have some a little bit of age gap as we tell stories. We're like, oh, I read that book in college. He's like, I was eight when that came out. Um, and just some of the, the stories and banter that we got to have with Justin, we got to hear how he and Rebecca met. He got to hear how uh, Leslie and I met, and like sort of a screwed-up story that's fun to tell now, uh, but we were embarrassed about uh, a while back, and I won't tell you that now. Um, sorry. I, I will tell you, a little bit different story. So Leslie and I met in college. Uh, we got married. We spent our first years um, in marriage doing youth ministry in Indiana. And a few years after that, we moved back to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, where I had grown up. And we ended up doing uh, youth ministry there for 12 years. At about 10 years into, into ministry, full time, I started to feel God doing something in me. I hadn't jumped into seminary after Bible college. Uh, I had just kind of wanted to jump straight into ministry. A decade into it, I felt like God was saying, I want you to go get uh, trained more. Not that you're not trained, not that you're inadequate. It was an invitation from him into something. And I thought, if I jump into seminary now, I may spend the rest of my days in youth ministry, and I'm perfectly happy with that. Seminary will take three years. If God would ever want to move me and Leslie to a different place, it started to be a burden on me to say, I don't want to tell God, wait three years, and then, and then we're yours. I want to do something now so that we're ready for what God has when he has it, and just put ourselves in position to hear. So while doing ministry full-time, I jumped into seminary full-time, did most of the stuff online, and my days got crazy, and Leslie's days got crazy. And in the middle of the three years, we had our third baby. And so it was just nuts. My regular pattern was to work the whole day and then to uh, come home and have dinner and put the kids to bed, and then probably about 9 o'clock, most nights it was 9 until 1, just open up the books and study, go to bed, and then do it again. And I remember one night where I was just, we had just got the kids to bed and I was opening up the books 
for the night, and Leslie looked over me, and she says, we're not okay, right? She said, like, we're okay now, but if things keep going this way, we're not going to be okay. And in that season, it was such a pressing season. Like, I got the Father's Day card that fathers dread. The, uh, my, one of my daughters in school had the assignment, like, draw a picture of your dad and then put, like, I wish my dad, and then fill in the blank. And my daughter gave me the card, I wish my dad would spend more time with me, which is beautiful. Like, I love that but also reveals there's a longing that I'm not meeting right now, right? And there was, there was a burden and an angst and kind of this twisting inside of me, both in our marriage and in me as a dad, like, God, what's up? What is going on? I really feel very securely that you called our family into the seminary experience for, for three years here. You led us here. And now our marriage has this tension. And my, my father-daughter relationships are lacking. What, God, are you doing? And I understood this joke, right, that some people call seminary cemetery. Like, you go and die. <laughs> like that is, I don't want anybody to go to seminary ever. But I can use some pretty big words now, so there's a good payoff, right? Have you ever had a "What's up, God?" moment? Maybe it was your fault. Maybe it's not. Maybe you were following God obediently, and yet life wasn't lining up. There's a tension, and there's a twisting in you, and your guts are going crazy, what's up, God? What are you doing? Habakkuk is this tiny little book in the Old Testament. In this return series that we're in, he's one of the minor prophets. And in just three chapters, 56 verses, Habakkuk enters into the what's up, God, conversation. Not like a Bugs Bunny kind of what's up, but a what is going on. It's a tiny bit of trivia as we enter this, and I don't think it's trivial. I love this. Habakkuk, weird name, right? H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K. Habakkuk means embrace. It's, I will cling to you. And through the book of Habakkuk, what we get to see is uh, Habakkuk, in the trouble, embraces God. Habakkuk, in the trouble, clings to God. And he finds a God who embraces him, who clings to him. And so, I mean, I could sit down right now. Like, in the time of trouble, Habakkuk. That's it. That's the application, right? Embrace. Recognize a God who embraces you. Recognize a God who clings to you. And you can stand here. Man, hi. Sorry. Total ADD moment. Find the God who embraces you. 
By the end of Habakkuk, what, where we're going today is, by the end of Habakkuk, I want to find you in a place where you could say, I can, find, uh, I can find the yet to my though. That makes no sense right now. That's okay. I'm going to explain that, and Habakkuk will explain that. I want to find the yet to my though. Hold on to that. Stuff that in your pocket. Wait for it, okay? We're going to open up into Habakkuk right away. Uh, in Habakkuk 1, we're going to read the whole chapter bit by bit and talk about it because he sets up this quarrel. He sets up the conflict. Habakkuk 1, starting in verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, uh, one little piece, okay? Most of the prophets, most of the prophets hear from God and they deliver a message to the people from God, right? That's pretty normal prophetic ministry. I hear from God and I give it. Okay? Habakkuk is a little bit different among the prophets. Habakkuk records one man's conversation with God. So he doesn't necessarily yet have a proclamation to the people. He's just doing straight business with God. And we get, we get to see into this conversation. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk says there's trouble. The wicked are thriving. God's people are doing evil, even within the camp. God's people are doing evil. King Josiah had been a good king, and he started a revival that brought God's people back to God. But when he died, they turned away again, and they did evil. And this is what Habakkuk is seeing all around him. He says justice goes out perverted. Like, there's this messed up, People are saying what is right, what is wrong is actually right. And what's right is wrong. And it's just messed up. And there's all kinds of this going on. Verse 3, he has six problems that he addresses. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you, God, look idly at wrong? Like you see it, I know you see it, and you're just sitting there. Destruction and violence are before me. Things are falling apart and things are getting beat down right in front of me. Strife and contention arise. There's evil and people are arguing and fighting and they're doing the wrong thing and it's destroying people, God. And you're just sitting there. What's up? Verse 4 says, here's, here's the results of what's going on. He says, the law is paralyzed. The law which is meant to protect, which is meant to build boundaries for our safety, is just kind of standing there like, I don't, I don't know what to do anymore. Justice never goes forth, he says. The wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. Why, God? Why is it like this? How long will it be like this? Now, here's one thing I want to point out right away. Habakkuk's faith is strong enough to go to God with the hard questions. And God honors his cry. God doesn't give him like a, wait, who are you? 
Like, how dare you come and talk to me in that tone? I do that with my kids. If they have the wrong tone, I'm like, whoa, do over. God doesn't make Habakkuk do a do over. He's like, I, I can take this, I can stand up to this. God answers Habakkuk. In verse 5, God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. And here's the verse that Kirsten pointed to a number of weeks back when we had our celebration study. He says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now what follows, that would be like awesome news. That is awesome news. What follows is not the wonder that Habakkuk would pick. If God laid out like, here's your five wonders, which one do you want? The one that God delivers is the one that's not on the list. He says, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God doesn't actually answer Habakkuk's question directly. God, what are you doing? He, okay, I'm, I'm doing this thing here. He says, I'm see, I see it. I see the trouble in our people. I see it. I'm doing something about it. Actually, God says, I'm going to use an evil people to discipline my people. The Chaldeans or Babylonians were strong. Militarily, they were worthy to be feared. And God describes them like fierce animals coming down. It says their dignity and their pride comes from within themselves, which is not a good place to be in, right? True dignity and pride come from our identity found in God. They worship their own strength. And God is basically answering Habakkuk saying, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And Habakkuk replies, God, that doesn't make any sense. God, that doesn't make any sense. So in verse 12, Habakkuk answers. The conversation continues. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil, cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. 
Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Chapter 2, he says, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk says, why would you do that? Like, I, I brought a problem to you, God, and you just, you're making it worse. Why would you answer that way? It doesn't make sense. It's not the answer I'm looking for. If you think your people are bad, why would you tolerate them? Why would you use them? They're so much worse. And Habakkuk uses this word picture about fish getting caught in a net and being brought into a boat with big hooks. Now, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do before a vacation, my dad would take me to Fleet Farm, and we'd walk down the fishing lure aisle, and we'd be like, oh, this is heaven. Look at that one. It wiggles. And that one's super shiny. I bet that one will catch a lot of fish. And we'd go through, and we'd pick which one we thought would attract the most fish. This is not like that. What Habakkuk describes is a fish being caught in a net, and then the pole that the fishermen used was this long pole with this nasty hook on it. And it was used to like rip down into the fish and pull it up into the boat. So it's not this like pretty lure kind of thing. It's to maim a fish. Grab it however you can. It's dying anyway. Might as well kill it now. Kill it and bring it up in. And Habakkuk says, that's what we're like. That's what's that's what's about to happen to us, God. That's the plan. And Habakkuk says, this trouble is too great, God. What are you doing? He's not only questioning God in relationship. He's lamenting. He's grieving. So hard questions, hard questions that don't have easy answers Grief is a part of life. To say otherwise, I would be lying to you. Hard questions and grief are a part of life. And if you're going to have a real relationship with God, honest conversation with him is necessary. We can see it in scripture. Like a third of all the psalms are called psalms of lament. They're psalms of grief. David is just true with his emotions. Sometimes he's riding high with God and like he's able to call on God who has saved him. And sometimes he calls on God and he's like, where are you? God, where are you? And yet I will, I will trust in you. I'm not running away from you. He has a psalm where he says, even if I ran, where could I go? You're everywhere. Like you follow me. You're there before I get there. You know everything about me but it's not always nice and neat and packaged up. Why, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord, are common questions in the Bible. Jesus even shows us a picture of lament. In Matthew 27, 46, we hear, out, we hear Jesus cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't think that Jesus is just giving us a lesson there. I think he's actually experiencing pain and grief 
And he's crying out to the Father in that moment of grief. Why? The books of Job and Lamentations are books entirely dedicated to lament and grief. We shouldn't hide from it. And to say we shouldn't hide from lament is also saying we shouldn't hide our lament and our grief from God and try to pretend it's not there. He wants us to come to him in the pain and confusion. And I think there's two ways to lament. There's there's maybe more. I think there's at least two ways that we can lament. The first sounds like this. God, why would you do that? I don't understand. And the second, though really similar in wording, but I think oceans apart is, why would God do that? One is a question in relationship. And one is a cynical, skeptical, I don't know if they're even asking for the answer kind of question. It's more of a statement. If that's what God's like, I don't want anything to do with him. Like That's fair. That's fair. That's just a different kind of lament. Then God, what is going on? Can you see the difference? Do you know that you can go to God with hard questions? Do you know that those don't embarrass God or make him ashamed of you? That when you are going through stuff that you don't understand and is really hard, you can ask God what's up. Do you know that? Like, I, I want you to know that. That's not a you should know that. That's a you can know that. God is good with you asking hard questions. He embraces people who are wrapped up in trouble, just like Habakkuk's name reveals. Habakkuk leans into God in lament. And notice something that Habakkuk does when he leans in. In verse 12, Habakkuk addresses God and God's character six times. Even in the point of grief, even in the point of, God, what are you doing? He addresses God in his character six times. He says, O Lord, from everlasting, my God, my Holy One, O Lord, O Rock. Somehow, even in the distress, Habakkuk is able to to call out God to say, you are still God. You are still holy. You are still my Rock. And I don't know what in the world you're doing. Right? There's a tension there in the relationship, but it's still a relationship that he's leaning onto. It doesn't make sense. And, and yet he answers, Habakkuk answers God, now I'm going to wait. And I think he means it. Like, I'm going to wait. I've said what I need to say. Now I'm going to wait. It's not an arrogant, puffed up, like, how are you going to answer me now? I'm going to wait. And God again embraces the questions and he answers. In Habakkuk 2, starting in verse 2, and the Lord answered me, writes Habakkuk. 
write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that so he may run who reads it. I love that. Like, write this down so that the one who reads it, like, they can race. They're ready to go. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul, and he's talking about the Babylonians. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith, God says. God says, write this down and share it with others. The answer to the trouble is coming. It will surely come. It might not happen in Habakkuk's lifetime, but it will come. It's about the end of the story. It's about God coming. Wait for it. It will come, says God. I'm doing something you wouldn't believe, even if you were told. In verse 4, he says, the enemy is puffed up in their own strength. And he says, I want you to live not out of your own strength. I want you to live by faith in me. In this statement, God connects back to Abraham, who's a hero of the faith. He says, I want you to follow me in faith. Walk with me in faith. And he says, the righteous will live by faith. Have you heard that phrase before? Have you heard it? Does it sound like a Bible verse? I bet you didn't read that in Habakkuk. I bet you read it in one of the three places it's quoted in the New Testament. The righteous will live by faith. The New Testament writers found that statement so critical to our foundation that they quoted Habakkuk three different times. The righteous will live not out of our own strength, not out of our own answers, not out of our own might or will. The righteous live by embracing God, by clinging to God, by faith in God. We know the God who's in control, and we cling to him. That's how we live. Ultimately, God says, I see the trouble. I am coming for you. I will save you. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all that Jesus is called Emmanuel. That Jesus' name, one of his names means God with us. Because Jesus is the ultimate expression of a God who will not leave us to destruction. Of a God who sees us in trouble and comes. And God says, I will give everything for you. I am coming to be with you. You want to know what my embrace is like, says God? Look at Jesus. I'll give up everything for you. God says, I'm coming. When Jesus rode into the temple on a donkey and the crowds were crying, Hosanna, save us. They were asking God to save them from their trouble. They were asking God to give them, actually, political freedom. God, we're being oppressed by Rome. God, would you save us? Would you bring us up into a government who can take care of us? And Jesus, a week later, is is killed to establish a government that will never end. Not an earthly government that offers us earthly protection, but a God who never ends, who will be with us forever. 
and welcomes us into his kingdom. Jesus didn't come to be a political king. He came to be our king, to set up a different kind of kingdom. In our deepest, darkest hour, while still tangled in sin and running from God, Jesus saw us and he came for us to bring us home. So I'll say, all trouble can be used to help us see the need to cling to God and see the God who clings to us. Let me say that again. All trouble can be used to help us see our need to cling to God and see the God who clings to us. Do you run from God? Or do you run to God when trouble comes? Do you know that God is standing with his arms open, embracing you, wanting you to know that he's drawing you in, even in the darkest moments? Do you know that you can question him? That you can complain to him? He may not always have the answer that you'd like, And he, at times, may actually point out sin in your life, ways that you're running away from him. He may use that to shine light and say, I still want you. I'm still delighted in you. I'm still calling your name. Come back. And it's not a heavy burden. Come back. Lay it down. You don't have to run away. Come back to me. When you turn to him in trouble, he will meet you there. And Habakkuk's Habakkuk's third chapter, right at the end of it, records his response. His response to God is one of joy and it's one of faith. This is beautiful. Like You should go home today and read this prayer that Habakkuk has to God in the third chapter of Habakkuk. Nothing has changed. And yet everything has changed. Circumstantially, nothing has changed. And yet Habakkuk has recognized God embracing him and and everything changes. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, he says, I will rejoice. I will take joy. God is my strength. He changes me so I could go to places I could have never on my own. He says, the Lord, the Lord is my strength. It could also be translated, and I love this. This word strength can also mean army. The Lord is my army. The God who fights for me has a whole army behind me. He is fighting for me. Habakkuk looks at the Babylonians who worship their own strength, and he counters it with, they can have their strength. They can have their army. My army is my God. And that's more than enough. God has given him strength. So let's be clear, nothing has changed. God hasn't fixed the problem. The trouble is still there. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, he says, Though, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, 
Though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no, fru- no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Though trouble is near, painfully close, though God is not fixing it the way that I would like, though there is no evidence of things getting better yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. And I think it begs the question right here. What is your though? Everybody has those. Everybody has them. You might have one really big though right now. You might have a bunch of them. You might have be able to look back in your life at those that you have walked through. Your though might be a sick child, trouble, or a sick parent, or a sick friend. Maybe you've lost a child, or a parent, or a friend, and that's your though. Maybe your husband gets assigned overseas for a year. Maybe you have a burden for orphans and you see a broken world and that's your though. Maybe addictions have you in their grip. Maybe you see deep issues within our church. Maybe your financial situation is bleeding out and you don't know what to do and you don't even know who you can tell about it. Maybe your though is a very hard work situation. Or maybe your though is that there isn't a work situation. Maybe divorce papers have been filed, or maybe he or she doesn't want anything to do with you. Everybody has a though, right? Everybody has a though. And it's significant. I won't stand here and tell you that your though is too small to be a though, right? We do that to people. Like, oh, come on, just buck up. If you identify something as a though, if you identify something as trouble, it's real. It's there. It's significant. And you you can share that. The world has a three-step dance to those. The world has this prescription to those. Three common responses to trouble that I think land short. The first one is to hide. We ostrich, right? We just kind of put our head in the sand and we pretend that it's not going on. And we think, if I can just hide out for a while, maybe it'll pass by me. Maybe I'm just making it up in my mind. I just need to like, you know, I just need to hide from it for a while and it won't be real. It's funny to think about an ostrich sticking his head in the sand when trouble comes its way. Like, yeah, you're protected now. You big, dumb animal. But I do it all the time. I like I hide my head under pillows and think, if I just stay here a little while longer, it won't be real. Trouble will pass me by. I've had too many times of ostracine in my life. Too many times of living in fantasy land, hoping that the fantasy would become a reality. And I've learned it is so much better to just deal with reality. Henry Cloud, I think, said it. And he said, reality is 
always your friend. Because everything else, everything else is just fantasy. Everything else is not real. Deal with what's real. The second way I think people approach trouble is they say, you got to fix it. You got yourself into trouble, now fix it. Be a man. Be a woman. Dig in. Lean in. Muscle up. Pull yourself up. Get her done. Get your strength on. Go. And I think a lot of times we just get tired in the process. And we come back to the same place like, I can't fix it. Sometimes trouble's bigger than me. I can't do this. Like that works when it's in your control. But if something is beyond your control and you're just trying to muscle into it, all you're going to get is tired and hopeless in the process. So then we go back to hiding. We fix it, we hide. Sometimes the third step then is if hiding it doesn't work, if fixing it doesn't work, we just quit. We just resign. And we say, I guess, I guess this is how it has to be. I had hope once, but I'm out. I'm done with that. I don't have it. I have nothing left. I'm done, and I resign. And we walk through life blank and empty, and we just quit. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you're here this morning and you're facing into a though, I don't want you to hide, and I don't want you to try to fix it, and I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to resign. I want to offer a different approach to it, one that Habakkuk offers to us. What does it look like to find, to find the yet to your though? To praise God, even in trouble, to have joy and hope and peace and strength that cannot be stolen and will not fade. We move, not as the world moves, not in hiding or in fixing or in quitting. We move in three ways. We move, like I said, from fantasy to reality. We call trouble out and we call it what it is. Whatever your though is, name it. And talk about it. Don't do it alone. Share it with people. If you're going through something, you're not intended to go through it alone. Name it. And then instead of hiding, I would or hiding or fixing, I would say, move from that, move from fixing to flying. Here's what I mean by that. In a book called Sabbatical Journey, one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, writes about some friends of his that were trapeze artists. You guys watch The Greatest Showman? And the trapeze artists there, it's pretty fun. Nouwen writes, uh, amazing movie, by the way, Nowen writes about his friends who were trapeze artists called the Flying Rudellas. And he was talking to them about uh, what it's like to live as trapeze artists. And they said, it's real important that you understand that there's a catcher and there's a flyer. And the flyer does the flying and the catcher does the catching. The flyer doesn't do the catching. If the flyer tries to do the catching, you, you fall. You end up dead. Like, oh, we do that all the time. I try to, like, have my kids jump into the pool, and 
I'm waiting for them, saying, jump in, and they're reaching to me. I'm like, get your arms out of the way. If you do that, I can't catch you. Just jump. Just jump. Let me catch you. Don't try to catch me. I will catch you. So when I say I want you to move from fixing to flying, I say, let God catch you. Let God grab you. Let him hold you. And quit trying to do that yourself. Quit actually trying to reach for God, to shake his attention, to say, God, I'm going I'm to hold on to you. If that, if that gets in the way of you allowing yourself to be caught by him, you're still in control. And it's going to wreck things. If you can just trust. Say, God, would you catch me? He doesn't let you down. God is a great catcher. He is a great catcher. You can trust him to catch you. From fantasy to reality, from fixing to flying. Recognize, recognize God. Here's where the character, here's where the Trinity matters. If you recognize the Father who looks at you and delights in you, a Father who has love for you, and you recognize a Son who said, I will search, I will come for you, and I will spend everything that I have. We have the Holy Spirit who says, I will never leave you. I will fill you, and I will empower you, and I will send you out. You don't have to fill yourself with anything. I will fill you. To be in Christ means that you have a Father, and you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit loved and came for you and with you now. God is a great catcher. Are you willing to stop trusting your own strength so that you can trust God's strength? That's a real question. We have a tendency to trust what we have. We need to recognize that what we have is God. Stop trusting your own strength. Lean into God's. And then the third, instead of resigning, we can rejoice. Like that's, that's a real thing. Move from resigning to rejoicing. The result of a, lived, of a life lived by faith is that you don't have to quit. You don't have to give up. That there's more. You might not even see it now, but God sees it. And as he has you, he can bring you into that. And you can rejoice Though trouble is all around me, though I do not see the solution, though God is not fixing it like I would like him to, yet I will trust him. And more than that, I will rejoice in him. So I started this morning saying, I want to help you find the yet to your though. Does that make more sense now? Yeah? You have a though. Find your yet. Though the world is pressing down on me. Yet I have God who embraces me and will not quit. God is good. 
and he invites you to return. It's not heavy, and it's not burdensome. He, let him be your yet. Let's pray. God, I love the promise, the declaration that you have in Habakkuk. I stand back and wonder, I'm doing something that you wouldn't believe if told. The ultimate fulfillment of that is that you, God, yourself came here. You put on flesh. You came to walk among us and you came to give your life so that we could be with you. It was your ultimate catching plan. God, this morning, would you set us free to fly? Would you help us to trust you wherever we are, whether we're in a time of rejoicing, where we're in a time of confidence, or if we're in our though, thick in it. Would you help us to see you as you reveal yourself to us in the name of Habakkuk, as the one who embraces us. Help us to return the embrace. We love you, God. Amen. We're going to move to a time of communion, which is an act of remembrance and expectation that God gave everything for us. Jesus on the cross offered everything so that we could have life. And as you eat uh, the little cracker that represents his body that was broken for us, remember the sacrifice. And then he raised a cup and he said, he actually had this supper with people. And he said, this is my body and it's given for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That is what I'm doing on the cross brings you life. And it's for you. You remember his sacrifice and you remember his life that are offered for you. Let's do that now.